good to be together, even though we're all in our own homes or in smaller groups. And we're spread pretty far apart, but you're welcome. And we're glad to be together. So our roundtable question for this morning is, how would you define the words dark and light? And how do these individual words make you feel? So because I had a hot minute to look at these questions, I'm going to answer my way. And then you guys can have a minute to think about how you would respond to the question. I think we're going to have that up, the questions up on the screen so that um, you're not just trying to remember what I said, but I'll say it again because they're not there. How would you define the words dark and light? And how do these individual words make you feel? So if I'm using the words dark and light, I'm talking about my ability to see clearly. If I'm in a dark place, it usually means I've lost some perspective and I can't seem to find my way out of a sadness or a tough spot. If I'm using the word light to describe my state, it usually will mean I see a path forward and I have a strength and energy to move towards a goal or a new way of being. So neither of these words really make me feel anything. They're just descriptors of how I am already feeling um, the way I use them. But how about you guys? How do you define the words light and dark? And how do those individual words make you feel? Just um, unmute yourself if you'd like to join in and you're, you will be highlighted. And then um, when you're done, just mute yourself again. When I think of dark, <clears throat> three different kinds of things come to mind. One is um, physical darkness. Totally fine with that. Restful, can be restful. And the stars come out. <clears throat> and another thing is uh, emotional darkness, which can be a real nightmare and hard to find my way out of. Uh, and then the third one is in art. Um, I, I belong to an art group that the uh, instructor, Judd Dorsey, says, uh, color in art, color gets the credit, but values do the work. So in a painting, you need the darks, and you also need the lights, and then you have the drama, the beauty. Very good. That's excellent. Anyone else? Yeah, actually, I mean, the same will be true in music, too. You know, that there's darker tones, you know, which uh, are more difficult to listen to. You know, it's more dissonant. It makes a point. Um, and then there's the lighter, brighter songs that kind of can be uplifting. Um, but it, I think, like, like you're saying, Kathy, it's a bit like uh, we need both. We need the contrast. Uh, otherwise, it's all very linear. You know, it's a little bit like enjoying the seasons of the year. You know, the winter can feel very dark and, and actually is, but 
it brings contrast to the uh, the spring when you start to see signs of life coming, uh, and we can appreciate and probably should appreciate the beauty in all of them. I am thinking of uh, dark being um, used to think of it more of heaviness um, and uh, not uh, not where I like to spend a lot of time. And yet, as I've got as I've gotten used to uh, understanding darkness as a place of um, growth, uh, when we think of root systems and when we think of uh, the beautiful formation that happened in the womb to create such beautiful creatures, um, then living in the dark has a positive um, aspect to it, that uh, what emerges is something uh, very beautiful and can be seen, but the work that uh, makes it beautiful happens in the dark. Um, then of course light is what people see, but uh, what's under the surface is what really is transformative, but it's not where we normally go when we think of darkness, or at least for me. I like how divergent our thoughts about light and dark are, our definitions and Oh, that's really interesting. Does anybody else want to share? Um, I heard a poem this morning, and I would like to apologize for the chaos of trying to get everything figured out this morning. Apparently, apparently my brain's not quite working. Uh, we're working on it still, but however. Um, back to the light and dark thing. Um, I, um, I heard a poem this morning, and uh, it fit exactly with this. Um, and it's called Our Deepest Fear by Marianne Williamson. It says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's like, boom, thank you very much. <laughs> so yeah, another thing about uh, dark and light is the, the sleep-wake cycle that we all go through. I guess creatures, animals do too. Um, we know about the, the uh, for, so, so when you're trying to wake up, the serotonin kicks in and, and replaces the melatonin. And when it's time to sleep, the, I guess the darkness aspect is the opposite. The melatonin kicks in to, to replace the serotonin. Um, we need this to, to live, I mean, we need the, the repair time and, and sleep time to help us to have the have productive, you know, light hours, uh, daytime experiences and stuff. So I uh, just thought of that. 
Another great thought. This is very good. As far as how it makes me feel, <laughs> I was just talking more science there when I really, but, and hormones and that, but yeah, that's, it should make us feel good when we get a good night's sleep after we've had a productive day, get to have a good night's sleep. Yeah. I'd love to have a good night's sleep. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay, we're going to move on. Um, Steve is going to lead us in communion now. So um, hopefully you have um, your cup and bread uh, ready to go. Thanks, Steve. Okay, we're just going to come together. Uh... Um, to take communion together. Um, I, I sort of I referenced this a little last week when we were uh, gathering to to sing. Um, communion is a is a is a sacrament of the church. It's something physical that we can do together, in which we can have an encounter together with Jesus. It's um, so it has in it a sense of remembrance, and it's something that. That Jesus suggested that we do because it would be beneficial uh the element that we're, we're remembering the story and the, and and what happened but there is also the the sense of uh, an encounter with Jesus in the act of taking communion of taking the meal together and um so uh if if you guys have got the um the elements we'll we'll read this is sort of a, a little short liturgy, which is put together by um, someone called Carol Penner, who was actually a Mennonite uh, minister I found online. And she, she said, I, I just borrowed some stuff from, from different places and, and put this together. It's, but there's, here's the kind of like a physical structure um, by which we can then come together to meet Jesus. So um, I'm gonna start just by reading. Come to the table of Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus invites you here as part of the people of God. Come to the table humbly, not because you've earned a place here, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love God and want to love God more. Come because Jesus first loved us and gave himself for us. Come because you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come because you want to experience the mysteries of God's grace. On the night he was handed over, Jesus had a meal with his friends. He took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and after giving thanks, gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, remember me. Let us pray. God, our creator, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, whose love pursues us our whole life long. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to us in word and deed, even unto death, even death on a cross. 
Come Holy Spirit, feed us with your love, that we may be filled with power to love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. Amen. So now we'll take the, the bread and the wine together, just a couple of minutes of silence. Um, just for Jesus. There's a sense in the physical eating and drinking that we're receiving a spiritual sustenance for um, the road ahead, for today and for the days to come. We've come to the Lord's table and we have eaten of the bread of heaven. God is the one who will transform us so that we can see with Jesus' eyes hear with Jesus' ears, speak with Jesus' mouth, so that we can be the body of Christ in the world, proclaiming the good news of God's reign. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, do I have to switch something? Um, um, can I ask? Do we normally keep it on gallery mode, or what do we what do we normally do, Eden or Sarah? Whatever you'd like to look at, Casey's good. I've got you spotlighted, so anybody who's on can see can see just you. But keep oh. it if you want to look okay. at it. Um. I'll keep it like that for now, I think. And then um, I'll switch when I've got some slides to share. Hopefully I can figure it out when the time comes. Uh, so good morning, everyone. I really enjoyed the, the roundtable discussion uh, that we had this morning. Um, fortunately, not all of my material was was taken, but a lot of the ideas that I had were were present, which was which is awesome. Um, it helps me to know that you know, the way I'm thinking about things as I'm preparing per perhaps is the way that that some others maybe are already thinking along those lines, which is not a bad thing. And, and there's some different thoughts too. So in nature, um, we have these two realities that we talked about a little bit this morning that can be experienced with our senses and somehow even felt within our body. Um, light and dark, day and night, they're both predictable in the case of the sun coming up in the morning uh, and unpredictable in, in how we might feel in a, uh, with particular things in our, in our life. There's certainty that we have that every day the sun is likely going to rise unless we've got some weird forest fire things going on. Um, and it's gonna set at the end of the day. 
And in literature, these two states, realities, are often used to contrast um, different things such as good and evil. So I'm reading, reading through, it's been a long time, but I've been, I've been listening to the audio version of the Lord of the Rings again, and it's been probably since I was in my 20s, the, the last time that I actually read it. Um, but in J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, there's a battle in which the forces of darkness or evil are seemingly winning against the humans who are the, the forces of light in this story. The specific battle was at a place called Helm's Deep, and it had been going on for some time. I don't remember the specifics of how many days it had been going on, but hope seemed to be lost. I'm just going to read a little bit from, from the end of the chapter. Um, yeah, so this is a night as long as years, he said. How long will the day tarry, said Aragorn. Dawn is not far off, said Gambling, who had now climbed up beside him. But dawn will not help us, I fear. Yet dawn is ever the hope of men, said Aragorn. And then near the end of this chapter, we pick up the story. Humans are making their last stand, prepared to die in glory, defending what is good. We've, uh, we've all heard stories similar to this before, even if we haven't heard Lord of the Rings. There suddenly upon a ridge appeared a rider clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills, the horns were sounding. Behind him, hastening down the long slopes, were a thousand men on foot. Their swords were in their hands. And then when the chapter ends, it ends like this. Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees. And from that shadow, none ever came again. So that's obviously just one example, but one that repeats itself over and over in many different genres within literature, within film, within even scripture. Especially it is seen in, in fantasy worlds, but, um, but I think it's also seen in, in action type movies as well and adventures. In this type of story, it's made abundantly clear that light and dark are really the only two things that exist in the world. We know in many stories what the end is going to be. Light wins, darkness is vanquished. But is it really so simple? So today, I want to talk about my journey in life to try and think about this a little bit differently. I'm going to be reading from a couple of the, le the lectionary passages that both use this same contrast between light and dark and try to convey what I see. And maybe it'll be a little bit different than how you've heard these scriptures talked about before. I think many of us probably already think like this, but I think it's worth saying before I read the scripture that I am bringing my own subjectivity, my own bias to the table with the scriptures that I read, just like we all do. There's an objective or unbiased way to read the scripture. I have not yet found it. Uh, I've believed for most of my life in scriptures which were somehow divinely written without the subjectivity or bias of the writers. But these days, I subscribe more to the notion uh, that Pete Enns often um, will say, which is that God lets his children tell the story, faults and all. So first up is Isaiah. So Isaiah is a book which contains much, many, many different themes, but some of the big themes present in the book are judgment and salvation. Up for debate, up for debate would be whether the writer 
or writers were more fortune tellers who knew exactly what was going to happen and it happened exactly like that. Uh, they had sort of a direct ear to God or whether they were people that knew how to simply rate, read the changing winds or perhaps maybe even people that were writing about it a little bit after the fact or doing re-edits after the fact when they actually put pen to paper. And then we have Matthew. Matthew is one of the four gospels. In my little bit of reading just about what Matthew is about and what sets it apart, in my study Bible, which is the HarperCollins Study Bible, which I highly recommend, the intro, intro to Matthew states that the gospel, according to Matthew, seems to be concerned with a few things. One is to present Jesus sort of as Moses 2.0. Several sources that I've read have all co sort of corrobor corroborated that fact or that belief. A second agenda or purpose of the writer is to showcase Jesus as one who fulfilled prophecy from the ancient scriptures, thereby proving that he was the son of God. It's interesting. I read last night, I read just very quickly read the first five chapters of Matthew. And, and I found there was prophecy littered everywhere. And, and sometimes it was, it was sort of, it seemed like sort of a stretch to say, oh, and, and this fulfills that prophecy, but, but Matthew does, does try for that. Um, so I'm going to switch my view here, or I'm going to share my screen um, where I have the scripture. Where is it? There it is. Share. Um, my screen sharing is paused. How do one second here. Share screen. Oh, this one. Viewer screen sharing, but I can't see. Okay, let's try this now, slideshow. Can you see that? Can you see my screen? No? Saying my screen sharing's paused, just one second here. I don't know how to resume it. I'm confused. Okay, well, I'm gonna do it without the screen share then. I can't figure it out. Um, just one second. Okay, but I need them. I need those slides for myself because that's where Ah, one second, sorry. Okay, so starting in Isaiah chapter nine, verses two to seven, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You've multiplied exultation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest, as people exalt when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be turned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we often use this prophecy sort of as a Christmas prophecy um, to, to talk about Jesus being born. After doing a little bit more reading within the margin notes within my Bible, doing a little bit of research outside of that, um, it's, it's likely that these prophecies in Isaiah weren't specifically written for that purpose. Matthew and, and some of the biblical, the New Testament writers use them for that. But likely they were originally written for the coronation of, of a new king, for King Hezekiah. It celebrates the ascension of a new king with tr traditional ideals of a Davidic kinship. Also mentioned in my study is that in this case, darkness is being used as an imagery for oppression. Light was being used to signify this royal relief of having a new king that was going to make things better. So this new king was going to save the Israelites by ending their oppression. And I do wonder, though, if when a prophecy like this was given, whether it was explained or if people just automatically knew what it was about, um, how it was how it was interpreted. Next, I'm going to read the Matthew passage, and it's similar, but I'm going to read it in, in its entirety as well. So now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in, in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in a region of shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to, to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So I don't know if you noticed, but those are both from the same from the same translated translation of Bible. And I, I opened up my physical Bible to, to make sure, but even the, the way the prophecy is shared, it's, it's almost like it's sort of slightly tweaked to fit what Matthew was trying to say, or the writer of Matthew was trying to say. One of the first questions I asked after reading this gospel passage was, why does Matthew think that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy simply by moving to that region? I also wondered what correlation Jesus hearing about John's imprisonment had to do with him moving into this region. And after he did move to that region, another question I have is, what does it mean that he brought light to this region? If he is the light of the world, does he, as scripture says, if, that he is the light of the world, if he's the light of the world, does he fulfill that prophecy simply by being there, or is there more to it than that? I think something of importance is that Matthew seems to be concerned with showing how Jesus fulfilled prophecy and also showing him off as sort of this shiny Moses 2.0. I also found that I needed to question whether prophecy can be fulfilled more than once. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, I probably would have said, no, a prophecy is for one specific person. It's one for one specific place. And I would ask if it was already fulfilled within King Hezekiah's coronation, how can it be fulfilled again? This reuse of prophecy in scripture, it's certainly interesting. It's intriguing. 
Sometimes I find it confusing if I'm being honest, but let's move on and I'll show you some interesting things I learned while preparing for this morning. So when I was younger, I never really thought twice about what this, uh, this place of great darkness might mean, the shadow of death, if you were. Wasn't it just used in Psalm 23 to signify great sorrow, pain, misery, etc.? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you're with me. So he was going through something hard, I think. And I think that's definitely one of the more common ways of interpreting it. And, and I'm not, I, I would never try to say that that's not a, an appropriate way to interpret it. I think that it is. But upon further reading, I, I learned that this valley of darkness, this valley of shadow, it's not only a state of mind, but it's actually a very real geographic place between Jericho and Jerusalem. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but it's it's known as Wadi Quelt. This valley is likely the same place that the psalmist refers to in Psalm 23. It's also believed to be the same place that was being walked in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it was a place that didn't seem all that desirable. It was It was sort of a narrow, treacherous path. Um, that was seen to be full of danger. In my reading, I remember reading that the temperatures could be extreme. If there was ever heavy rainfall, um, the flooding could be quite treacherous. Maybe this wasn't the sort of place that people wanted to be spending their time. Uh, it doesn't sound all that desirable the way that scripture uh, paints the picture for us. But I also found several images or things that were written about the, the very same place when I when I looked it up. Um, some of the, many of them were from tour companies that were trying to, that are sort of trying to, to show people that it's actually a beautiful place. So Michael Tour Company says this, the jagged rock cliffs carved out of millennia of water courses offer a stillness increasingly hard to find in the Holy Land. And a short-lived beauty each later winter and spring following the rainy season. During this special period, wildflowers blossom. A trickle of water may run through the base of the valley. And birdsong can echo along the path. Those that journey on the path may be fortunate to see the regional variety of wild deer, as well as the hyrax, also known as the rock rabbit mentioned in, in the Psalms. Now, some of the pictures, I want to show you some cute pictures. One was of the rock rabbit. If you have time, look it up. It is, it's adorable. Um, Hikeisrael.com says this. Ain Prat is the biggest spring of Wadi Quelt. The flow of the spring is constant and the influence of the seasons is minimal. The daily flow rate is about 1500 cubic meters per day on average, which for a desert area is actually uh, a considerable amount. The last image that I was going to show you, and again, I would I would recommend looking it up at some point, um, is of a monastery, one of one of the monasteries that's in this valley, known as Saint George, the Monastery of Saint George, which is, if you look it up, you'll see that it's it's quite beautiful. I didn't know about this monastery until I started reading more, until I started preparing, but. It was apparently built in the 5th century by an Egyptian monk, along with five other Syrian hermits who were supposedly all living in caves nearby. Uh, there was a time when, 
yeah, there was a lot of hermits in in the world that were trying to they were trying to live a life that was just basically them and God is my way of understanding it. They chose this site supposedly because of its proximity to the place where Elijah is said to have been fed by ravens. The monastery also apparently has historically been one of the few of this type um, that welcomed female visitors as opposed to many which only um, welcome males, which is just an interesting and encouraging note. So using my simplistic reading, oh, there's the picture. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> there was one that I had that just showed like a close-up of the face, which was also quite cute. I don't focus on the, I don't focus on the, the chat very often, but when I'm, when I'm sharing. So using a simplistic reading to get through the Matthew passage, it still causes me to wonder how Jesus is said to have fulfilled the prophecy. And I obviously, I think I need to read on it some more. And maybe some of it is, is a mystery. I didn't live in that time or place, but it also makes me think of how we can interpret the words darkness and light in more than one way. So I spent a little bit of time pondering and thinking about different ways that these two, two contrasting words can be interpreted. Some that I came up with, uh, which, which I heard this morning during the round table as well, uh, but, but some that I came up with are, you know, light being brightness, just a physical thing that we notice, brightness versus dark being dimness. Um, the way that it's used in, in Isaiah would be more freedom from oppression versus dark would be oppression, being in oppression. Light can also be used to say not heavy, where, whereas dark, when you read a dark book or when you watch a dark movie, you're kind of saying that was heavy. Um, daytime versus nighttime. Obvi in uh, literature and in, in war type movies it's sort of good versus evil light versus dark and then also angelic versus demonic we we sometimes will see um, or we've read into um, so that scripture sort of says it in that way the most common way that we use light and dark within the natural world is probably um, what we see around us uh, a sunny day is beautiful the colors around us appear to almost glow at times because they are so full of, of richness that is being provided by the sun. But on most sunny days, some of us will seek shade, while others love the sun and they can't get enough of it. If we had nowhere to find shade, we might find it unbearable to be in that, in that heat that's provided by the sun. We put on sunglasses because depending on where the light is, it's almost too much. Some people even prefer days that are gloomy and rainy to those that are sunny and bright. Personally, I would say my, my preference is when the sun is out, but maybe covered by a few clouds every once in a while so that the temperature isn't too hot, that I can get some reprieve, and that the glare isn't so much that I have to put on sunglasses. Even the brightest day has a variation of light and shadow. And then how about nighttime? Isn't a clear sky when you can see thousands of stars beautiful. It's one of the things that makes me um, always a little bit sad about living in the city is that you can't see those, those stars as well. Isn't it also beautiful when you can see maybe just one star 
Or maybe you can't see any stars at all, but you can see the clouds faintly moving through the sky. Even the darkest night has some color variation and light peeking through. In nature, we don't find many places where either light or darkness are absent. What about light and dark to represent good and evil? The start of my talk, I mentioned the scene from Lord of the Rings. The battle scene clearly shows that light equals good, dark equals bad. It wasn't until the sun rose and the white rider appeared that there was hope for victory. At the end of the story, good defeats evil, light wins out over darkness. How about that cheesy universe that we all love or many of us love of Star Wars? The most distinctive thing about the universe to me, I think, is that there's this religion which believes in a power called the force. The force is said to connect all things. Seemingly only a few religious zealots actually really care about it. But the two opposing religions are known as the light and dark sides of the force. I've really simplified it. There's a lot more to it than that, obviously. But I realized that trying to sum up the stories is really hard to do, even if you've seen the movies or read the books countless times. Both the Bible and Christian fiction, or at least the way I've, I used to read the Bible more, um, often use light and dark to represent both angelic and demonic forces. When I was a teenager, I read these books by a Christian author that were trying to do the same thing, but with what he imagined the unseen world of angels and demons might look like. In this story, angels and demons had already made this final choice of who they were aligned with and were serving the ultimate desires of their master, either God or devil. The humans were involved because their prayers acted as something of an energy drink, if you will, for the angels, making them sort of stronger and buffer somehow. In this story, anyone who wasn't either actively praying and also a conservative Christian was already on the side of darkness. It was only the Christians who can give strength to the angels literally to win the battle. This is obviously a very simplistic view, but one that many who call themselves Christians probably wouldn't have too much of an issue with. I know I didn't when I was younger. I actually really liked the books in my youth because somehow I was connecting my faith to this unseen realm in a way that fantasy fiction tried to do. Because I was more or less in the same conservative camp as the author, I didn't really notice all the ways in which the author takes jabs at sort of diversity within the Christian faith. Things that he would consider liberalism. The liberals, in his view, were just as much a part of the problem of darkness as the non-Christians were. So I guess we're all kind of screwed in, in his <laughs> writing. In film and in stories, it's often been made extremely clear the characters that are on the good side and those that are on the bad side, the light and the dark side. It's often easy to see where the light places are and where the dark ones are. But the more I open my eyes and the more I, the more I realize that it's, it's much more complex than that. Like with Wadi Quelt, the Valley of Shadow of Death, how can one place be so treacherous as to be called a valley of death and also have such beauty as was described by the tour guides? I must admit, 
It does make for an exciting narr narrative when it's really simple. When we as the reader, listener, or watcher are able to clearly see the moment someone moves from the dark side to the light side. Or maybe more commonly in narrative, when someone moves from the light to the dark side. After all, this type of storytelling tells us very clearly who we should be rooting for. As an adult, though, I'm not always as in interested in just those stories. I also want the story where the hero has some major flaw or secret they're trying to keep. I want to see that even though the antagonist did horrible things, that there was a single dull beam of light that was in them and that caused them maybe to slowly transform. Sometimes I want to read a story with people that have both light and darkness pulling against them. And certainly that appears to be more realistic. The point is that it's not really as simple as light equals good, dark equals bad. At least I don't think it is. I've never known a single person who I would say was completely light or completely dark. I used to think that everyone was making a specific choice in life of which side they were on. But I just can't see it that way anymore. There's beauty all around us. The light is spreading to the dark places. Part of me being someone who is hopeful in, of a universal reconciliation means that I believe Jesus is working in order that all will experience the light that he brings. After all, that is one of the most important things that Jesus said to us. Not only is he the light of the world, but so are we. It is part of the Great Commission that we spread that light. Unfortunately, Christians seem to have done just as much harm as they have done good in trying to shine the light of the gospel. During the end of slavery, there were many believers who really still believed in, in the idea. And um, from what I've heard, that's where um, certain denominations were formed, because there were, there were some that still wanted to, to hold on to this view that slavery was okay. I'm not certain that we stood for light any more than people with no religious affiliations, to be honest, sometimes. We've preached from pulpits that Jesus is the answer, but followers of Christ have unfortunately been part of the problem. Some would even argue that many of the wars we've, we've seen ourselves in were due to religion, which can be troubling. Yet somehow for all of our darkness, Jesus is able to see something beautiful within us. When his people wanted war, he came in peace without a sword. When they wanted a king, he came as a carpenter. When they wanted him to set up in Jerusalem, he moved to this, this Wadi Quelt. He moved to Capernaum by the sea. And I believe that when we want him to destroy the darkness, he instead goes and dwells there. Perhaps until we realize that darkness isn't as treacherous as we thought it was, because Jesus was there all along. And if we are to be the light of the world, maybe we can be people who let others be there for us in our times of darkness. Maybe we can be there for others when they are in times of darkness. Maybe we won't always be able to know if our presence actually did anything. Or if we were just there inhabiting space with them. Maybe stepping into the darkness, we, we will realize it wasn't as dark as we had supposed. And maybe just our being there in the darkness will be enough for a little bit more light to shine through. In my playlist for this morning, um, 
I included a Simon and Garfunkel song, which I've always loved. Um, the first line of it is, hello, darkness, my old friend. Um, I've got a link. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can share this link. Um, I can't read the whole article, but um, there's a story about what that song is actually about or what, what inspired that song. And to sum it up, uh, basically, Art Garfunkel, um, which is such a great name, but Art, Arthur Garfunkel, um, when he was in university, one of the one of the guys that he became really close friends with, um, basically suddenly went blind. He lost his sight, and um, Arthur stayed with him the whole time. He was actually they were best friends, and they sort of made made agreements that they weren't going to leave each other, that they were going to be there with each other through all the most important times. Um, and he actually, in, in solidarity with his friend, um, he would refer to himself as darkness. Um, sort of as a, I don't, yeah, sort of as a, you, you are able to only see darkness most of the time. And so in solidarity with you, yeah, I'm calling myself darkness. And so it was his relationship with this with this man that sort of was the inspiration for this song. This friend of his was actually lent him the money to be able to produce the album and to do the recording, which is where the sound of silence came from. And the album itself was commercially sort of a flop. But The Sound of Silence came out about a year later as a single. And it was, you know, it's probably one of the most recognizable Simon and Garfunkel songs that that was ever recorded. And but when you when you learn about the and, and when you read the article, I'm sure that many of you will um, will be quite encouraged. It's it's quite a it's quite an amazing article. This guy basically credits Arthur Garfunkel with basically. Um, he wouldn't be anywhere that he was today without that friend, without that friend that sort of helped him. He encouraged him to come back to university after he lost his sight. Um, he he helped him do whatever he needed to do until he could become independent enough to kind of get by on his own. Um, something you can't imagine. Um, so, yeah, read the article if you have time. And that concludes my talk. Thanks, Casey. Um, that was excellent. I like so much research and uh, additional little goodies in there. Um, Probably too much research, but it's all good. Well, I mean, it, it was, it, it really kept us, or at least me thinking, mm -hmm. made me think about, um, you know, there's um, like, night sky sanctuaries right you were talking about kind of kind of one of the unfortunate things about living in a city is you don't really see the sky and they have night sky sanctuaries so there is one just down the down the freeway um if you head towards Chilliwack you turn off the freeway I think it's at the Cultus Lake exit but you head north and you just follow it till there's like a little park and it's kind of tucked in the mountain and you can see the night sky a little better. 
Um, There's also another one in the Okanagan between Penticton and Oliver, kind of tucked in between the mountains again, and you can see quite amazing night skies. Mm. Brad and I got to go to um, a small island off of New Zealand called Great Barrier Island. Mm -hmm. And it too is a night sky sanctuary. And because it's in the middle of the ocean, like it's pitch black. (laughs) And everybody had all their lights go out at eight at night. And, and you're standing there with your hand in front of your face and you can't see it. <laughs> and, awesome. um, and, and I started to feel like a little scared. Mm. And then Brad just goes, look up. And we looked up and I have never seen anything so spectacular in my life. Like, wow. I didn't know there was that kind of color in the sky at night. And um, it was really moving and just amazing. And I think if um, if we recognize that God is not absent in the darkness, we will see the colors there too. Mm-hmm. And, and we will see the beauty even in those difficult places or the hard places. And um, yeah, it, it's, um, it's pretty cool. I'm thinking about... Uh, Right after Jesus died, his first port of call was hell. He went into the the lowest low and the darkest dark. And um, said, yeah, I'm going to be here too. And I'm going to pull you out of this. It's a good reminder for us all, I think. Um. I'm going to close with a blessing. And uh, Jesus, thank you for being with us, whether we're in the dark or in the light, that your presence permeates it all. And so the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.